Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today I'm very pleased to welcome an expert, an expert on forestry and an expert on the sustainable plant. We have the honor to have here the Secretary General for the Global Alliance for a Sustainable Planet, Satya Tripathi. Thank you so much, Satya, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Satya, usually we start the journey asking about your personal journey and your background. Can you tell about us about it? Well, my personal journey has been uh, a very humble one. I've been uh, involved in uh, the climate, uh, environment, and sustainable development space for nearly 40 years now, a little more than 40, actually. And uh, I started my journey as, as a lawyer nearly 40 years ago. And in that, some of the early cases I had the pleasure of getting involved in were uh, cases pertaining to protecting rivers. Uh, protecting them from environmental degradation. And and so, uh, of course, I was an apprentice lawyer at that time, and these cases were being done by people with great wisdom and insight uh, and passion. So I was very happy to be a fly on the wall. You know, sometimes you are in the courtroom and these matters are being discussed, and it's fascinating for uh, somebody who wants to learn. While uh, in many of these big landmark cases that I had a privilege of being a part of, while the senior most lawyers are arguing the case in the court, there are tens of young apprentice lawyers that are actually doing all the research and putting things together and preparing the pleading and uh, briefs, the plaints, as they call them in legal terms. And, and so so it was fascinating. that, And then, of course, even before that, I was a student leader. Um, so I was pretty much every educational institution I studied at, uh, I was the president of the Students' Union. Leadership started early. <laughs> the leadership started early, not as a leader, but as a learner. So uh, when I was heading the Students' Union in different uh, uh, big educational institutions, my thinking was that while conventionally people might see you as a leader, for me, it was a learning journey because if you truly want to speak on behalf of the students, then of course, when they elect you, it is your ideas that they are electing. But thereafter, once you're elected, you are their representative. So while your ideas are useful, they can't be the only ideas. So you need to listen carefully to what the students want uh, so that you are truly representing them in a conversation with the vice chancellor of the university or the principal of the college. So that is very helpful. And so proud that I had that opportunity to learn from many people, uh, many youngsters. So when I work now in in the climate field or environmental protection, and when the Greta Thunbergs of the world talk so passionately, I understand them because my learning journey goes back uh, 40, 50 years when I was actually listening to young people like her um, and admiring the passion and the character they brought into these conversations. Of course, there are always critics. There are horrible people that uh, tell 
weird things about passionate people, you know, because they always find you as unconvincing because they can't convince themselves. So anybody else that speaks with love and passion for nature or planet or species, they doubt them because they doubt themselves. That doesn't make uh, activists like Greta or there are many others, them any less in passion or uh, desire for change, but the people that criticize them are actually criticizing themselves because they can't convince themselves that this is true, you know? So that's uh, where it started for me. Um, and then of course, I was in the legal field for a bit. Uh, and then I was uh, in the national civil service in India for about um, 10 years. And then, uh, then I came into the UN. And then in the UN, it was a fascinating journey. You know, uh, you know I had the opportunity of uh, heading the human rights investigation operation of the UN after the war in Bosnia. Then I was chairing the committees on laws and treaties for the Cyprus negotiations in 2003 and 2004. Um, then I was uh, uh, the uh, chief policy advisor to the transitional government after the Ankara peace accord in Liberia. Then I was the UN recovery coordinator after the Boxing Day tsunami, uh, working with President Clinton, who was the UN special envoy for tsunami recovery. And in my role, I was coordinating uh, a nearly $8 billion tsunami recovery program back in uh, uh, 2006 to 2009. And then again, I went back to being a lawyer in the Supreme Court of India. Then again, um, the UN called back. So, so I came to head uh, UN ORCID, which was the UN office for Red Plus, uh, based out of Jakarta, uh, where the headquarters were. And so I had the privilege of setting it up uh, because it was something new that Secretary General Ban Ki-moon was uh, starting. He personally came to open um, that special office, uh, which was a partnership between 10 UN agencies. And, and Red Plus, as you know, uh, is the reduction of emissions from deforestation and land degradation. Uh, and the Plus Plus is uh, basically the biodiversity enhancing carbon stocks and, and what have you. Um, and then, of course, I left that in early 2016 uh, to work pro bono and set up something called the Tropical Landscapes Finance Facility, which is a partnership between the UN, uh, BNP Paribas, uh, the bank, uh, the World Agroforestry Center, and, and ADM Capital, a fund manager out of Hong Kong. And so I, I brought all of them together to establish the Tropical Landscape Finance Facility, and the first project there was a $400 million project to protect a 400,000 hectare forest a landscape, which was six times the size of the country, Singapore, and is one of the most richest uh, biospheres uh, anywhere on the planet. And uh, it's the Bukit Tigapulu forest in Sumatra in Indonesia. And then we took the same idea to India in Andhra Pradesh state of India, where they are converting 6 million farmers to zero synthetic chemical farming. So no chemicals, no pesticides, uh, no fertilizers, uh, only natural substances. And it's not organic because organic is expensive. Uh, organic, you are basically trying to substitute a synthetic chemical fertilizer, uh, which is in a very dense, nutrient-rich form by bringing in biomass 
based fertilizer, then the volume is much bigger, huge. And so that's why organic hasn't really scaled because it is expensive. But bioinoculation, or what is more popularly known as regenerative agriculture, is phenomenal because the cost drops anywhere between 50 to 80 percent, depending on the crop and the location and the techniques employed. And the yields go up anywhere between 30 to 200 percent. And the nutrient uh, density in the food remaining the same or even better. And the plants are far more resilient and you use absolutely no chemical pesticides and fertilizers. So it has amazing impact on species. So in Andhra Pradesh, where they now have converted a million farmers, the so world's largest regenerative agriculture program in any one location. And it's extraordinary what they have been able to achieve. And they're well on their way to do 6 million. And then, of course, the UN called back again. And I became the Assistant Secretary General uh, for Environment based out of New York uh, as part of the team of uh, Secretary General Guterres. And then after uh, my term, the first term was over, uh, I decided to leave and collaborate with a large group of activists from around the world to establish the Global Alliance for a Sustainable Planet. So that's my sustainability journey. A very humble one, small, but we try to punch above our weight. Satya, I was listening to your experiences and already that can be already cut down in three or four episodes, especially, and I'm really grateful for the insights and the work, especially on regenerative agriculture, which is something that I'm passionate and is really important. From the leadership, early leadership with the young people now, going to the top and talking and being at the forefront and in all of big programs, changing lives and transforming landscape. Now you are at the Global Alliance. Can you explain a bit more? What is it? And which are the mission and the vision for this group of people, of change makers? So Global Alliance is, is a group of very passionate people. You know? so, so we have five guiding principles for ourselves. The first principle is that uh, we must be driven by deep commitment and true passion. What I mean by that is that the organization has roughly 10% staff members and 90% volunteers. So that's the model always. Uh, for every one staff member, we'll have 10 volunteers. That's So the ratio is one is to nine or one is to 10. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we don't do small things because we are small. So because we are small, doing small things, we can't do much impact. Uh, so we must do things that have impact at a system scale that are really changing things. And it comes from our own size, of course, but more importantly, the fact that the world is at a very bad place, environmentally speaking, or speaking from the perspective of global warming or climate change. So we have to be ambitious. We have to do things at a certain scale that really tip the needle. That's the second thing. The third thing is that we are a catalyst. We don't do projects ourselves, basically meaning that we latch on to an idea, maybe your idea, my idea, maybe somebody else's idea. We don't claim any ownership of ideas, even if it is our own, uh, because when it is developed, it is a shared idea. So when you're building partnerships, you have to realize that when you claim ownership, that is the worst poison you can inflict on a partnership. Because in a process of co-creation, everybody must get the respect and the dignity of creating it together. So when you get selfish, 
uh, and start claiming, oh, it is my idea, even if it is your idea, then you are actually killing the creation before it even sees the light of the day. So that's the third thing, you know. And the fourth is that we're a catalyst, you know. Our role is to enhance the property of other elements without taking away their originality. The same as in what you will call a catalyst in chemistry or physics. And so being true to your own calling while letting others be true to their own and enhancing their service delivery, the ideas, taking it to next level and all, you know, that's the fourth thing. And fifth, not be paid by anybody that you are working with. So we are a free service. Uh, we don't get paid by anybody, any of our partners, we don't get paid by them. Now, there are there might be cases where something is being organized and they say, hey, you know what, let me organize this and I will pay for it. But then they are paying the organizing company or event or maybe it's a hotel where you have a high-level lunch gathering. So they pay them directly. We don't receive the money. We don't process it. Uh, we don't keep 15% commission, you know, as is the normal thing, even in the UN and everywhere else. When a donor gives you money, you are allowed to keep a certain percentage of money to manage yourself, which is good. There's nothing wrong with it. But we don't even do that to avoid conflict of interest. So if we're organizing a big event and three sponsors came together, who might be our partners, say, you know what, uh, this is costing you $100,000 and we'll, we'll, four of us, we will put $25,000 each. So then we will tell them, thank you. Um, that's very kind of you. So here is the company that's bringing in the food. You know, you can pay them directly. Here is the company that's doing all the live stream and the digital and everything else, you know, pay them directly so that we are not involved in that process. We do exactly the same when we are generating an investment of billions of dollars. Uh, we don't touch the money and that's how we avoid conflict of interest. Otherwise, we are no better than anybody that is a business development consulting firm. You know, We are an advocate for mother nature. We are an advocate for all the species. And conflict of interest is extremely important from that perspective. So we never receive a penny or a fee or anything for anybody we work with. So we help for free. And that's why the one is to 10 model works so well, because for every one person, there are 10 volunteers who are never paid anyways, you know? So we don't need the money because we're not paying 90% of the people. And for the 10% that we pay, there are always good donors who have nothing to do with the projects or ideas. They just come forward and contribute and we are grateful to them as well. And that's wonderful. And really, you see the serving, also leadership and bringing your capability I really liked the idea of being a catalyst. Can you tell a bit more? Because I'm sure now I'm getting curious to see some impact stories from uh, the work that you have done that you can share with us. Let me talk about the first big thing we did in GASP, which was last year. So if you look at the Caribbean, uh, the CARICOM countries, which is the full form is the Caribbean community. Uh, so what happens in the Caribbean is that it is a tourism-rich country. So all the countries together, they receive about uh, three times the number of their population as tourists, which is huge. There are very few countries in the world that get that kind of tourists, you know. So if you take the case of the United States uh, with 320 million people, that will be the equivalent of the United States getting a billion tourists every year. 
that doesn't happen in the US and, and that's fine. But in the Caribbean, it does. And so what has happened over the decades is that they have a very supply chain economy where 95% of everything that is consumed is actually imported, which then basically means there is no impetus, no incentive for local agriculture. I mean, of course, at one point of time, they were British colonies mostly, and the sugar cane fields, and we know about that, you know, that was big industry, but that land is all degraded now, and not much sugar comes out of the sugar cane fields. So we worked with CARICOM, and, and so they had this policy called 25 by 5, which means they wanted to reduce the imports by 25% in the next five years. And of course, the Caribbean has a lot of land. Land is not a problem. The population is not very big. So what can you do to then create food security? You know, so then we worked with uh, 20 different partners, you know, big companies, you know, Siemens, uh, Kipster that produces Net Zero Eggs and uh, produces Market and uh, lots of companies, you know, Safe Haven, uh, Pegasus Capital, South National Climate Fund and all. And we launched this in uh, last year in November in Glasgow. And the Prime Minister of Jamaica also spoke at that gathering. Uh, so the first project is in Jamaica, where you bring together a significant number of actors. And, and so we've produced an agroforestry model that actually will regenerate the land and produce uh, agricultural producers. It will grow them while fixing the land and the water table and making it a fruit and vegetables hub, not just for the Caribbean, also export to the United States. So you're basically reversing the import flows and becoming an export economy so that when next time there is a pandemic, your economy will not collapse totally because tourism completely dropped to zero because nobody was traveling, nobody was allowed to travel anywhere. You know, um, And we know that this is not the last pandemic. There will be many more, especially with the, uh, there's a recent study that came out um, and they're saying that what happens in the Arctic is not going to stay in the Arctic, meaning that when the Arctic glaciers melt, the bacteria that has been frozen for millions of years uh, within those ice sheets, they will come out. And when they come out, they come back to life. And then water flows everywhere on the planet. Ice stays where it is, but water flows. So over a, very quickly, those bacteria will be finding hosts, animal and human hosts, all over the planet. And then that would create new pandemics and new challenges. And so the economies uh, of the world that are tourism dependent have to very quickly diversify and find their resilience in other economic models that um, can still look after the communities and the people while tourism stops. You know That's something we did. That's the first one. Uh, and, and that was a $300 million investment. And, and that, that's progressing well. And then, you know, recently we launched a program in uh, India in one of the big states in India with 55 million people uh, in partnership with Parley for the Oceans, uh, the company that patented ocean plastic and produces, uh, of course, they don't produce, their partners produce. They have uh, brand partnerships with Adidas, Mercedes, Dior, Louis Vuitton, and all these high-value brands. And their partnership with Adidas alone last year produced more than billion dollars worth of shoes, shirts, and all, you know, so many products. 
that uses ocean plastic. So they are the main partner. And uh, so it's a $2 billion program over the next few years to, to get this state in Eastern India uh, free of plastic pollution in the next five years. You know, So that's something that uh, was launched on 26th August in the presence of 22,157 people, which was a new world record in beach cleanup. And together, uh, they cleaned up uh, 74,000 kilos of plastic from the beaches. Yeah, so that's the scale. And in that process, again, we work for free. Yeah, nobody pays us. And we are so proud to be able to do that. And Satya, those are wonderful projects and wonderful impacts. I was really impressed. And when you say, you know, we are small or we don't do small things, I can see now the impact and the work that you are doing and really the transformation that you are bringing. And really, you have touched a lot on the importance of agroforestry, uh, which is your passion and work. Can you explain a bit for the people that they are there, why the importance of the forest and their agroforest and regenerative agriculture? So everything we know about the natural world is thanks to the forest. Sometimes we don't make the connection. Uh, people think, uh, let's say in New York, uh, where I, we are based, people think that food is produced by Grubhub or Uber Eats or Postmates. It's not that actually, it's food is produced by a poor farmer, maybe tens of thousands of kilometers away, toiling hard in very rough uh, terrain and rough climate to produce that food, then that gets transported all over the world. Now that is produced on land and the land has nutrients because the forests created the nutrients. And so what is happening for human civilization, especially over the last hundred years, is that we, we cut down a, a forest territory, a virgin forest territory. Why? Because that is rich in nutrients. And then we start agriculture in a process that is not regenerative, but is actually classic nutrient mining. So we are mining the nutrients, producing food, and then the land is degraded completely. And then we go away and cut down another set of forests. So that has been going on for a while, but unfortunately that can't go on because the planet has limited number of forests or trees that you can cut down. And that is coming to an end, whether we want it or not, it is coming to an end. There are no more forests to cut. Forests other than fixing nutrients for our food also produce one third of the oxygen we breathe. The other two thirds comes from the oceans. So once those forests are gone, so the carbon is not being fixed. So forests actually turn nitrogen into oxygen during the day by uh, the process of photosynthesis. And then so they're fixing the nitrogen. As the nitrogen goes in, uh, then that goes through the tree's own uh, root mechanisms into the soil. And when you cut down the tree, then you need nitrate-based fertilizers to produce food because you've destroyed the nitrogen fixing mechanism. You know, And so that's the, the other part. So our food comes from forests. Even when they are not there, what they have left behind in the soil, which is more popularly known as soil organic carbon or minerals that they have fixed, is then mined by rice paddy or wheat or fruits or vegetables that we grow until they are finished. And then we go and cut another forest. And so forests are getting us our food, our oxygen, our water systems, and the other species, because it's not just a habitat for humans. 
when we go and live inside a forest, but it is a great habitat for all the other 8 million species. So when they survive, together make up what is known as the web of life, of which the humans are a small part, but they are a huge part in its destruction. So that's why forests are so important, you know. And it's really something that we take to the earth and we often forget. And really how the interconnection and the work that we do with, with our planet. Recently, and now, you know, these months of the COP, the discussions, and more and more, there is the finance and the carbon market, which is heralded as one solution, you know, to save the forest and really break this circle of deforestation. What are the lessons and the insights you can give us there? Well, the carbon market, you know, it, it's simple and complex. It is simple because scientifically, you know what carbon is and you know what the measurement tools are and you know how to say with some degree of certainty that, okay, I have taken away or pulled back or reduced, whatever the term you use, these many tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is primarily responsible for global warming. So that's good. So there, there's no confusion there. The confusion arises when you get to what does carbon do for you? It's like money. Let me explain, you know, economics 101 tells us that money is what money does. So money by itself has no meaning, but what it does has meaning. Same with carbon. Carbon is what carbon does. Um, so there's there's carbon, there's good carbon, there's better carbon. Let me explain how. Now, sometimes we spend a lot of time on big ideas. So currently the idea that is going around very successfully is this idea of direct air capture of carbon. So there are companies like Climeworks, Carbon Engineering, Global Thermostat, a whole bunch of companies that have these machines and then they put them up in some place. Climeworks has its machines out of Iceland. And so what do they do? They basically have developed technology where you suck the air from the atmosphere and then it goes through a filter in a hot chamber and a cold chamber. So the filter in the cold chamber traps carbon molecules. And then you move that filter to a hot chamber where the carbon molecules get released and then they are captured and then you mix it with water. There's a company called CarbFix that uh, has that technology. So they, you mix it with water and then you push it down through high pressure pumps into volcanic rocks that are porous. And then it goes there and it solidifies. And then so in terms of technology, it takes it out, puts it into the volcanic rock deep underground, and you can successfully prove that the carbon is stored, never going back again. So everybody's happy. So in terms of the basic carbon part, it's good technology or the complex part. I wouldn't call it bad part because all technology is useful. The complex part is that carbon is selling now for about $20 a ton, roughly. That's the market price. They are selling it on their website at 1,000 euros a ton on their website. So this is not my information. It's all on their website. So they're selling it at 1,000 euros a ton, and there are tens of thousands of people buying because they think, oh, this is technology. It's going to scale. And, you know, we're happy to buy a few kilos. You know, you feel good about it, right? That, that feel good thing, you know? You have had a great meal and you walk out, you see a beggar outside, you give them a dollar or 50 cents, your conscience is happy. Oh, you know what? I contributed to somebody, right? But that's not going to solve that person's life situation. Maybe some part of the meal they might eat later in the day. But if you really wanted to help them, you would actually gather every beggar in the street 
and say, guys, can we do a cooperative, you know, and let's do a focus group. What can change your life? This has no dignity. Why would you beg? Why can't we all come together and do something where not only that you produce wealth for yourself, but you can actually, once you grow, you we will go around the city and call every beggar and make them part of a nice community that works for itself, works hard and produces goods and services and contributes to the economic growth of the community and the country. What a wonderful thing to do. Same thing, charity. Either you can drop a coin or spend a little more time thinking and saying, can it be any better, you know? Can I do better? Can I find just an hour, you know, and then, and you know, every day to bring these people together? And whatever idea, I, this was just a random idea I remembered or thought about. So same thing with carbon. The farmer, so you are willing to pay 1,000 euros per ton on a technology that actually even the people that developed the technology are telling us that in current last year, they reduced only 3,500 tons, which is nothing. The planet is emitting 40 billion tons every year. So 3,500 tons isn't even a blip on the radar. It wouldn't even be noticed. And so you are happy to believe them and more power to you and them. All technology is good. So I'm not criticizing anybody here. But while you are doing that and spending 1,000 euros for that carbon, think of the farmer who's working very hard to take away the chemicals and the fertilizers and the pesticides and bringing back bees and birds and trees onto the agricultural landscape, regenerative agriculture, clean food, quantum leap in public health, because you're not using cancerous chemicals anymore to produce your food. So every human being and all other species can have a fulfilling life that they can live true to their potential. Why wouldn't you think of giving maybe $100 per ton of carbon that is sequestered by these farmers instead of the thousand euros you are happy to pay for technology. And even those technology developers are telling us that by 2050, by when we'll all be a destroyed planet, by 2050, we would be able to produce these reduction credits for $100 a ton by 2050, when the market is at a billion tons removal. Currently, they only remove 3,500 tons. And so it is a wonderful story of ambition, of hope and all, but it's not real. It's not real because it will, by their own admission, if everything works out, then it will be, they'll be able to take away one CO2 ton for $100 by 2050 and a lot of ifs and buts. Here, it's happening here and now. The water use is dropping, no chemicals, clean food, great public health, poor people at the bottom of the pyramid, their lives are transforming. Birds and bees are coming back. Trees are coming back to agricultural landscapes. We'll have amazing planet once again if we are willing to spend that $100 now instead of $1,000 on a dream. Wow, and that is a powerful statement. Carbon is, is simple and complex at the same time. We really need to look where the impact is. It is Carbon is just a tool. Carbon is not a goal in itself. It's not an end in, in itself. It's a tool. So you have a vehicle. Now, where you want to go with that vehicle is your call, you know? Yes. And it's a really wonderful message that you are giving us and a wonderful explanation, very clear. We're going towards the end of the, the episode and I'm sure we'll, we'll try to do another episode with you because <laughs> the wisdom cannot be challenged just in, in minutes. I want to ask you as a final question, you know, your some tips and some your message that you want to leave 
to our audience that is listening to us? Especially to the young audience, you are the hope because you are not afraid to displease people because we have been in the business, especially diplomats like myself. And of course, not me. I, I don't see myself doing that. But a lot of my fellow diplomats do that every day. They want to be nice to people. They say tough things in a nice way. And sometimes other people remember the nice and the not, not the tough part, you know, and not the hard facts. So young people have this tremendous ability to not only think straight, think with clarity, but also say it as it is. So my message to young people is that be true to yourself. Future of Mother Earth depends on you. My generation has failed you spectacularly. So, and be the voice of change in your households. The second thing is that there's this conspiracy of silence. We never talk about climate or environment or birds and bees disappearing around our dining tables or around our family conversations. So bring it to your family conversations. That's the second thing, you know. Third thing is be imaginative. Do not stop till your goal is reached. There's this famous Indian philosopher called Swami Vivekananda, who more than a hundred years ago in Chicago at the World Parliament of Religions, when he was speaking about the assimilative power of his belief and his spirituality, he said, awake, arise, stop not till your goal is reached. Because unless you awake, you don't know what is happening around you. Unless you arise, your voice will not be heard by others. And if you stop, then you might have awakened and arisen, but still you stopped somewhere that doesn't help. So be super focused on your goals. And the fourth thing is that you must believe in yourself before others believe in you. So whatever it is that you are bringing to the public domain as an idea, as an insight, you need to believe in it yourself. So do your homework. Be as critical of yourself as you can until you are convinced that this works. And this is something I'm going to really focus on. And last but not the least, if you want to go a short distance, go alone. But if you want to go a long distance, which Mother Nature needs, you'll have to go as a team. In the current time, the true genius is not an individual. A true genius is a collaborative genius, which brings together the ideas of very many people, very many thinkers, or very many regions or geographical spaces to produce something that we can really use uh, in support of uh, healing and regenerating our only home, planet Earth. Thank you so much, Sadi. It was a wonderful episode, full of concept, and I really take to the core, even for me, and with my humble contribution with this small podcast, trying to bring forward messages and trying to share as much as possible the idea. Thank you so much for your wonderful episode. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.